Well, this morning we're going to kind of take back, take a trip back in time. We started to go through the book of Exodus. I'm coming back to it for a few weeks here. The title of the message this morning is God's Altar Made God's Way. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus chapter 20, if you would, this morning. As we look into this next text of Scripture, it's helpful to be reminded of what has just taken place. God has just given Moses the Ten Commandments. And by way of review, they are, do not have any other God before or gods before me. Do not make any graven images. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may have a long life. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give, do not give false witness or lie against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's house or anything that he has. I, I think... God pretty well was all-inclusive in that list of uh, commands that we were to, to obey and to follow, or that they were to obey and to follow, and follow there. But what an amazing journey the children of Israel had been on in those recent months. The children of Israel saw and experienced first ha- firsthand, perhaps greater than anyone else in history, the power and presence of God. Invisibly, they witnessed the plagues as God used Moses to fight for their freedom, They walked through the sea on dry ground as they escaped the wrath of Pharaoh. They followed God by a a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night as they began their journey. And they saw the smoke and heard the thundering voice of God as He gave them the Ten Commandments. Can you imagine just for a moment hearing the words that God spoke to them through Moses? I mean, they were right there in the midst of God at work in their life. Who of us wouldn't want that? We want to see God at work, don't we? We want to see God's hand in, at work in our lives, and we want to not just, you know, we want to know more that He's more than a, page, a name on a page of paper in a book, right? We want to experience His presence in our lives. I think all of us want that. But seeing it sometimes is a little bit more difficult. We're people of product, people of, uh, you know, being able to touch a, a tangible thing. And uh, one thing I've said, and I've explained to different people, there's sometimes, you know, uh, when I was putting myself through college, a lot of times I would work uh, construction jobs. And in my first uh, ministry outside of college, I worked construction. And uh, it was amazing that at the end of every day, you could look back and see the progress that was made. Some days it was a part of a roof. Some days it was windows installed. Other days it was siding up. Other days it was these three walls. Other days it was steps in place and getting up and down from the basement to the upstairs. You know, every day when you look back, you saw something that God had allowed you to do with your hands. And then you step into the world of ministry, and you don't always see the result of the work and the labor. Sometimes it's long hours of conversations. Sometimes it's months and months of teaching. Sometimes it's building relationships that you wonder, am I getting through? Am I going anywhere? Is God doing anything? Because you don't see the results always. We want to see God's hand. We want to see His hand at work in our lives. But that's where our faith and trust comes in. That God is at work. That He is there, even though we may not see the tangible result of it. And let me just say, even though the tangible results may be there, you still may struggle with the faith aspect of knowing He's at work. I mean, who had a greater experience to see God's hand at work than the children of Israel, right? I mean, they got to experience everything firsthand. And yet they still struggled to put their faith and trust completely in God, didn't they? But 
a couple of awesome things took place here. If you would just for a moment follow along as I read verses 22 through 26 of Exodus chapter 20. It says, Then the Lord told Moses, This is what you are to say to the Israelites. You have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You must not make gods of silver to rival me. You must not make gods of gold for yourselves. <coughs> Excuse me. You must make an earthen altar for me and sacrifice it on the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Your sheep and goats, as well as your cattle, I will come to you and bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. If you make a stone altar for me, you must not build it out of cut stones. If you use your chisel on it, you will defile it. You must not go up to my altar on steps so that your nakedness is not exposed on it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before you for these moments this morning, we ask, God, that you would speak to our hearts. God, would you help us to realize that your commands are, are right, they're just. And though we may not understand, they are best for us. And Lord, we realize that as they had just received the Ten Commandments, those Ten Commandments revealed to them, Lord, that they were not perfect. They were not good enough. They couldn't do everything that you had for them to do in and of their own power, their own might, their own strength. God, we need you to live a life of obedience, to live a life that would be pleasing to you. So God, help us to depend on you and not on ourselves, Lord, that we might see you speak, that we might be doers of the word, not hearers only. So, Lord, meet with us, we pray, in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of awesome things took place there. First of all, the people saw the power of God like never before. And can I just say it? They were in a perfect place to be in a... They were in a perfect place to see God at work. Um, it's usually in the difficulties that you and I would not choose that God shows up and works miraculous ways. Um, remember the beginning of the book of Exodus? He looks out at them, he says, I've heard your cries by reason of your taskmasters. There was nothing that was taking place in their life that God didn't know it was taking place, right? I mean, God saw that Pharaoh was beating them, and that he was oppressing them, and he was trying to destroy them from the inside out. God knew everything that was taking place. He said, I heard your cries. I know what's going on. And that's why he said, I'm going to send uh, Moses, and uh, <coughs> he's going to lead you out of that land into a land that flows with milk and honey. God wanted something better for them. In fact, they wanted something better until they got it. And then God had to remind them that you begged for this and that I want you to come out so that you can serve me and worship me and follow me and obey me. But they had to struggle with the flesh. Because even though God had brought them out of Egypt, Egypt kind of came with them with their gods and their idols. And God had to remind them that these are the commands, these are the, follow, or the laws that I want you to follow me. These are the ways that you can please me by your obedience. And God had to remind them that, wait a minute, it's not over yet. And God had to give them a few more uh, laws to follow. And in this text of Scripture, the people saw the visible power of an invisible God. And the people trembled in fear. And they stayed away from where God was doing something. Look at that. I hope you caught that just for a moment. Look at verse 18 again. All the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains surrounded by smoke. 
And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. I mean, they stood way back because they knew that something incredible was taking place, that God was doing something on the mountain. (coughs) And Moses really had become their mediator. It was exactly what the children needed. It's what they asked for. In fact, verse 19, he says, You speak to us and we will listen. What was he saying here? Moses, you're already up there with God and whatever you tell us, we'll listen. But we want to stay back ourselves. They were seeing and experiencing the power of God in their presence. In fact, in Deuteronomy... Um, I want to say it's chapter 5 and verse 5. He says this. At that time I was standing. This is Moses recounting what took place. He said this. At that time I was standing between the Lord and you to report the word of the Lord to you because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain. I mean, he realized as he's looking back on this situation that took place, you guys were in fear and trembling and in awe of what you were seeing God do. And Moses had become their mediator. However, the law had its limits. The law proved to remind them, and it proves to remind us that we're not perfect, not near good enough to keep the law. And this is what leads us to the Gospel. Isn't that amazing? The Gospel is... It just makes a grand case right now for the Gospel to step in and say, you cannot do it yourself. It's what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. In fact, Jesus could do for us through the Gospel what the law could never do, and that's this, to bring us to salvation in Jesus Christ. And that is so important. I'm going to be jumping around just for a few moments, but I want you to turn your Bibles, first of all, to Romans chapter 8. It's a familiar passage. I know you know this. In verse 3 it says, What the law could not do, since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh, flesh by sending His own Son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering. Jesus Christ became sin for us to pay a sin debt that we could not pay. The law could not do that. You see, every time the law came up, uh, do not have any other gods before me. Can we say that we keep that implicitly? I mean, I mean completely? No. Because anything that we give more time, attention, focus, energy to has a potential of becoming an idol in our life. How often does that happen? How often has a job become our idol? How often has a relationship become our idol? How often has a hobby, a sport become our idol? How often has the news become our idol? How often has a book become our idol? (coughs) We need to realize that anything that we give more time and attention and energy and focus to has the potential of becoming an idol in our life. And God says, do not have any other gods before me. Don't have any other graven images. Do not have anything else that you're giving more energy to than me. And it just goes to prove to us that we cannot keep the law completely. Enter Jesus Christ who paid sin's debt for us. How many of us have ever misused the name of the Lord our God in anger? How many of us have not honored our father and mother? Say, well, hey, I've got number six down. I've never murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I I don't steal. Hey, I'm good on some of those. 
right? There are certain cherry ones that we're really good at. And then there's other ones that we struggle with, and we know we struggle with it. Enter Jesus Christ. So he says in verse 3, what the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. And he did it through his son, Jesus Christ. But he goes on in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Go over there just for a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And notice verse 5. It says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus, Himself human. So here's the deal. In the Old Testament, when the law was given, Moses had become the mediator. He was the one that would listen to the Word of God and then present it to the people. And then all of a sudden in the New Testament, Jesus Christ becomes our mediator. And now let me just say this. He's the only one that we have to repent our sins to. He's the only one that we need to bow our head to. He makes it very clear throughout the New Testament. Where Moses was a mediator, Jesus became the new mediator. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 3 just for a moment. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3. says, For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. I mean, think about that. Here's Moses who was their leader, who was their mediator, but now there's Jesus, who is more worthy. Isn't that awesome? It goes on here, he says, Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as son over his household. And we are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. See, there's Moses, but now there's Jesus. And he's far greater. Uh, chapter 8. Book of Hebrews, chapter 8. Verse 6. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with this people, he says, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors that the day I took them by their hands to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I disregarded them, says the Lord, because... They did not continue in my covenant. In other words, they broke their word. They broke their promise. But this is the covenant that I will make, the house, make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hands and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen, and each, his, uh, each person will not teach his fellow citizen, and each of his brothers saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the last to the greatest of them, or at least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. And by saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is old, and what is old is aging is about to disappear. <clears throat> now he's on the scene with a new covenant. A new mediator. And it's Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ. The one who paid the price. The one who could take care of all their sins. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15 says, therefore, he is the mediator, mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the internal inheritance because of a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions 
committed under the first covenant, Jesus Christ paid the price. And he brings in a new relationship. One more passage in Romans chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 18. It says, For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm. Does that sound familiar just a little bit? That's all of what he just explained in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18, 19, and 20. The darkness, the gloom, that was all of what he was talking about when he was delivering the law on the mountain. It says, For you have not come to what could be touched, no more law. You can't touch this anymore. So it goes on here. To a blazing fire, to darkness, to gloom and storm, to the blast of the trumpet and the sound of the words, those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. I mean, Moses, you get the word and give it to us, and then we'll follow. They were unworthy, unable to do it in and of themselves. It says, and if, even if... And if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city, to the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels in festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, to those names who have been written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood which has better things the blood of Abel. Over and over, he paid the price. And he brings it into reality that there is a new covenant and a new, a new relationship that has been begun because they could, not re, they could not keep the law. They were not good enough. They were not able to do in and of themselves what, what God had already done for them through Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's why he says in Romans 8.1, Therefore no condemnation now exists to those in Christ Jesus. Because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So back in our text here, just for a moment, in Exodus chapter 20. Verses 18, all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains surrounded by smoke. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak and we will listen, they said to Moses, but don't let God speak to us or we'll die. The first thing that we see as a result of the Ten Commandments that were given is that there was a fear for God. There was a fear for God. They were terrified at seeing the power of God in their lives. I wonder, have we lost that sense of awe, that sense of fear, <clears throat> the sense of the terror of the Lord and what He's able to do? I mean, God, whatever you say we'll do, but we don't want to hear it directly from you. Tell Moses and then we'll do it. We can't handle this. They were in fear and trembling. But can I just say, God's Word tells us that the fear of the Lord is the what? beginning of wisdom and knowledge we need to fear god this world needs to fear god we've forgotten what it means to fear god and maybe it's because we don't live as though his presence is with us we want the blessings of god but we don't want the obedience to god that begs the blessing 
But there's another big point here, and it's this. God has spoken. I mean, God spoke to them. Through the stone, yes. But God spoke. Let me give you an illustration. Several years ago, a man had uh, sought a position as a senior pastor of a church in Indiana. As the church went through the process of seeking the man that they should hire as their next pastor, um, the man seeking the position was seeking God's face as to whether or not he should even go there. So the church is praying, is this the man? And the man is praying, is this the church that I should go to? As the church finalized through prayer and faith who they felt was to be their next pastor, they called this friend and informed him that he was not the man who was to be called. And rather than being disappointed, he exclaimed, Yes! And the guy on the other line says, Excuse me? Did you just say yes? Because he's thinking in his mind, We just told you we're not hiring you. And he says, Yes. But God spoke. And he said, I wanted God to very clearly tell me whether or not I was supposed to go there or here. And by your phone call, God spoke. When's the last time we got excited about God speaking to us? Come on now. When's the last time we got in God's Word and God spoke to us and we're like, that's cool. i got to tell somebody something. When's the last time God got a hold of our hearts and got a hold of our attention and said, man, this is something I have for you and I want you to know this and I'm telling it to you so you can be a, a mouthpiece for me and tell it to others. When's the last time we got excited about something God shared with us? It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool how when God, every now and again, will give you something that you can't contain, you've got to tell it to somebody. And there are about three of you that text me that every so often. Hey, Pastor, check out this thing I got this morning. Stephen does it once in a while when he's gone. I was reading this. He goes, Pastor, I mean, how coincidental is this? Well, quite honestly, it's not coincidental at all because God gave you something that, that you know, is really cool. When's the last time that God spoke to you? Someone asked a question a while back. Where is God when I need Him? I think a better question is where are you when you need Him? Because God's not the one that moves. God is where He's always been. And if we're not feeling pretty close to God right now, it's because we've probably moved away from Him. And that's the truth of it. You've heard me illustrate this before, but the point of the matter is this. If one member of your family is upstairs in the bedroom upstairs and well, one of you is in the basement and you're yelling at each other. How hard is it to hear? It's pretty difficult, isn't it? When one's down in the basement and the other one's up on the second floor, it's kind of hard to have a conversation, isn't it? <laughs> but when you go side by side, you can hear pretty easily, can't you? See, God is where he's always been. And God says, when you draw nigh unto me, guess what? I will what? Draw nigh unto you. God had just spoken to the children of Israel. He was in their presence. And like every situation, there are those who recognize it and there are those that don't. I believe very clearly that God still speaks. He still speaks today. If you want to hear His voice, we need to get in His words so that he, we can listen to what He's saying. And I believe that He still speaks as clearly today as He did for the children of Israel. We may not be standing as Moses did in front of a bush that's not burning, but yet is on fire. We may not be witnessing the plagues that took place and how God gave Moses the ability to, to, 
to deal with Pharaoh through those circumstances. We may not be in the day where he has a pillow of, pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, but God still speaks because his word has not changed. Are you listening? Is God speaking to you? Are you listening? You see, God can't speak to you when your book's like this. He speaks when the book is like this. And we're reading it. People have said seeing is believing. It was no different for the children of Israel and what they observed brought them to a place of worship and praise. God was beginning to give them some guidelines. The first guideline was, or should we say reminded, was this, no other gods. No other gods, very simply. In fact, look at this. Back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 23. You must not make gods of silver to rival me. You must not make gods of gold for yourselves. Well, wait a minute. Wasn't that already in the first ten commands? Why is he, why is he saying this again? Why, why bring it up a second time? I mean, I, I'm pretty good at listening. I mean, I, I think I heard it the first time. Why again? Well, I believe one of the reasons he begins all over again and restating what he's already said is that people often forget and are tempted to go astray and let other things or idols get in the way of their relationship with God. Don't raise your hand, but let me ask this question. How many of you have ever made a decision regarding your relationship with Jesus Christ? Don't answer. Don't don't raise your hand. And maybe it was in that decision that you said, God, help me to do fill in the blank. God, help me not do fill in the blank. God, help me be more faithful in fill in the blank. And God, help me to overcome this habit of fill in the blank. And we find ourselves, even though we know what's right, doing something that we know is not right. We made the decision not to do it or to do it. But we find ourselves in a position where we're not honoring that commitment. I think that's what he's saying here. It's really easy in the hustle and the bustle and the every day and the the here and the now and and the the to-do list to, wait a minute, I made a commitment to do or not to do, fill in the blank, and here I am doing it again or not doing it again. People forget and are often tempted to go astray and let other things or idols get in their way of relationship with God. And one of the greatest relationships on this earth is the relationship between a husband and wife. On the wedding day, Every good intention is observed by all, is it not? I mean, the couple is up here, and the pastor is reading, reading through their, you know, their vows and so forth, and they're making their commitments before God and man, and in sickness and in health. I mean, nothing is going to get in the way of this relationship, is there? I mean, isn't that the, isn't that the, the rationale? Nothing is going to get in the way. Nothing. I mean, so death us do part. We will be faithful to each other. How often have we, have we observed that? We have all observed marriages where once a commitment was made, but somewhere along the way, something, regardless of what it was, got in the way of the commitment that was made. God was reminding them, no gods of silver, no gods of gold, for I am your God, and you have observed all that I have done. I have spoken from heaven, he says. Can you imagine just for a moment two kids, maybe they're your children, and one is kind of the little bossy one, 
Everybody's had a children who had a bossy one, right? And the bossy one is telling the other one who's a little more compliant that they should do something or not do something. And when they realize that so-and-so is not doing what they said to do or not doing what they said not to do or whatever, well, mom said, or dad said so. See, that little tagline kind of gives it that little, you're going to do it. So look look at the passage here. This is coming from heaven. That's the tagline that's giving it the punch. You're supposed to be doing this. Well, I know, but hey, he said so. You don't like it, blame it on him. There's the there's the punchline. So notice in verses twenty four through twenty six another set of guidelines. This set of guidelines has to do with our worship. And this is really interesting here. Look at verse twenty four. You must make an earthen altar for me and sacrifice it on your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings and your sheep and goats as well as your cattle. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I can cause my name to be remembered. Look at verse 25. If you make a stone altar for me, you must not build it out of cut stones. You must use your chisel. You must, Or if you use your chisel on it, you'll defile it. And you must not go up to my altar on steps so that your nakedness is not exposed on it. Notice what God was telling them to do. Make an altar of earth and uneven stone or unhewn stones. Why? I mean, why not give God the best that we have, the best that we can give Him? Why not make it out of gold and silver and precious stone? Why not give Him the best of what we can get our hands on? Well, in this specific instance, God was helping them not fall into a situation where the altar might possibly become the idol. How often does that happen in churches even? Where we have these rules and traditions and regulations and guidelines that we have to follow, and pretty soon the rules and the guidelines and traditions become the very law that God never gave. You say, wait a minute. Let's break this down. You put a chisel on it, you're going to ruin it. You add silver and gold? Uh Uh-uh. Plain, significant obedience. God didn't want to be worshipped as the pagans were worshipped. In other words, no square blocks, no silver, gold, no pyramids, nothing that would distract them from true worship. I mean, nothing like going into a temple and saying, Wow, look at that altar! Man, look at the detail of the gold symbolism and and the silver outlay. Man, that is awesome. And meanwhile, you're forgetting why you went there was to worship God. He said, I don't want none of that. That's how the pagans do it. I just want you to worship me. No distractions. Wouldn't that be neat if we could come into the church and worship God that way? I'm going to meddle just for a moment. I grew up in a church that you were not allowed to raise hands. You raised hands, you were a Pentecostal. We don't want any part of that. Bad hand, bad hand. Get that, get, get down. You know, come on. But how many of us, if we just didn't care about the person next to us, what they might think of us, would just say, Lord, I want to worship you and you alone. 
I don't care what they think. I don't care what they think. I don't care what they think. God, I'm just, I want to worship you. Say, Pastor, I'm just uncomfortable with that. Great, wonderful. But it shouldn't be judgmental. Spirit, go with it. True worship from a heart. Not worrying about what other people think. But realizing that you only stand before one. Nothing that would distract. Nothing should distract us from true worship. In verse 24, he says, In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want God's blessing? Want God's blessing? Put his name out there. Get his name on top of everything. Exalt him and him alone. See, there are two types of sacrifice. There's God's and there's ours. God has always given His people a way to atone for their sins. Way back in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God clothed them with the skins of animals. Uh, after the flood on dry ground, God allowed them to build an altar, as did the patriarchs when David, as he came along. However, the greatest atonement for sin was made by Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, God presented Him, Jesus, a propitiation for our sins. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 10, Christ was the burnt offering for our sins. He paid the price. Moses was the mediator of the law, but God became the mediator between man and Jesus became the mediator between man and God. Paid the price. He was a propitiation. In conclusion, I want to just make this statement that Martin Luther made, speaking of Christ's sacrificial work on the cross. He said, all the prophets saw this, that Christ was to become the greatest thief, murderer, adulterer, robber, desecrator, blasphemer, etc. there has ever been anywhere in the world. He is not acting in his own person now. Now he is not the Son of God, born of a virgin, but he is a sinner who has has and bears the sin of Paul, the former blasphemer, the persecutor, the assaulter, of Peter who denied Christ, of David who was the adulterer and a murderer, and who caused the Gentiles to blaspheme the name of the Lord. In short, he has, bear, he has and bears all the sins of all men in his body, not in the sense that he committed them, but in the sense that he took on these sins committed by us upon his own body in order to make satisfaction for them with his own blood. Isn't that amazing? That Jesus Christ would take on the sins of the world, not because He had to, because He chose to. That we might experience redemption in Him. If there is a sacrifice to make, it would be the admonition found in Romans 12.1. Be a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable form of worship, service to the Lord. But, the sacrifice that remains for us to make is a sacrifice of praise to God according to Hebrews chapter 13. And with this I'll close. Hebrews chapter 13. Verses 15 through 16. Therefore, through Him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips that confess His name. 
Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Isn't that awesome? You see, in the last passage there in Exodus 20, he talks about God's altar made God's way. God says, I want true worship. No distractions. He says, I've spoken. This word's coming from heaven. And as we come into the New Testament, he says, the sacrifice that I want from you, Romans 12.1, is your reasonable worship to give your life a living sacrifice. And then to be a sacrifice of praise upon our lips to confess his name. That's the kind of praise he wants. That's the kind of, that's the kind of sacrifice he wants from us today. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Are we sacrificing in that way? Can it truly be said of us that we have a sacrifice of praise on our lips where we are confessing his name? His name. See, it's, it's, it's easy to confess everything else, isn't it? And the word confess simply to proclaim, to shout out, to acknowledge. I mean, we're pretty adamant about our lack of political people this year, however you want to say that. But we're also pretty quick to confess who the greatest football team is or you know, who currently is doing well, who is making great strides. We're pretty quick to confess what the weather's like and how we either liked the rain yesterday or we didn't like the rain or how we're liking this cooler weather or how we're not. See, we're pretty quick to confess a lot of stuff. But are we quick to confess and have on our lips the praises to Jesus Christ? That's not as easy sometimes because we're so inwardly focused. We're kind of to-do list people. We've got to do this, this, and this. And Unless we schedule time with God in there, we don't do it because it's not on the list. Or it's become robotic and we just don't think too much about it. And there's danger there too. John MacArthur said a couple of years back, he said, the problem with being in church for 30 years is this. As soon as the pastor says, turn to such and such, we look at it and say, oh, yeah, I've heard messages on that before. Okay, go ahead. And we go into coast mode. Don't let that be said of us. But we still want to hear God speak as he spoke to the children of Israel that we still want to see his hand at work. We want to experience his presence in our lives. Because you say, it's not God who moves. God is still in the heavens where he's always been. Still trying at times to get our attention, to get our focus back on him. And just like Peter, as he began to slip underneath the waves as he took his eyes off Jesus, his hand is right there. And maybe this morning you need to grab his hand again. Say, I need to get pulled back up into this thing. I need to get right, right with the Lord again. I need to confess my sins and realize I can't do it without Him. We need Him. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, Lord, we thank You so much for this day. We thank You for, Lord, even the songs that we sang this morning. Every praise belongs to Him. Every praise. Everything that we experience is only because of your mercy and your grace. You tell us in your word that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. 
You are so good to us, God. Lord, as we close the song service with rooftops, I'll shout it across the rooftops. And how interesting is that in your word you tell us the sacrifice that brings glory to you is a sacrifice of proclaiming your name. Lord, I pray that it would be our desire this morning, Lord, to be people who would praise you and sacrifice in that way. That we would truly exalt you in all things. It's so unnatural, Lord, for many of us. Sin reigns. But to have an instinct of praise, where it's the thing that rolls off our mouth, God, may it be said of us. His heads are bowed and eyes are closed this morning for a few moments as we...